So this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are going to be in chapter 7, and uh, the title of the message today is Wise and Foolish Hearts. And, you know, one of the reasons that we titled it that was because in verses 2 and 3, you see the mention uh, of the word heart. He kind of continues that in verse 4, and he's going to continue with that theme. And so, uh, remember, though, the, the overarching context of where we're at is really we're coming out of a question in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 12 says, For who knows what is good for a man in life, all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? What, who knows what's good for a man? And we're, we're in chapter 7, Solomon is answering some things that are good for men from God's perspective. And, you know, what's, what's hard to understand or believe is, is exactly what we're seeing in chapter 7 is that adversity and difficulty in somebody's life is actually good for us. In fact, it's actually better for us than sometimes having success in life. That is totally contrary to human perspective. And so we've got divine perspective invading our space here in chapter 7. And as we go on with the heart, we read this in verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And, and this is exactly why Solomon had just got done saying in verse 2 that it's, it's better or it's good. You know, what's good in a man's life? Well, this is one of the things that's good for, for men and, and, and women in their lives. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. We looked at that last week. It's better to go to a funeral than it is to a party. And we thought, who, on what planet is. Does that make sense? Well, on planet earth with divine perspective, that makes sense. He also said in verse three, it's, this is why sorrow is better than laughter because wise hearts, if you will, um, again, heart is just speaking of the inner man, the, the motivations, the core of a person, how we, how we think, how we evaluate life. That's what he's talking about here because wise hearts, he says here, are, are actually cultivated. They're they're formed, they're shaped uh, by sorrow, recognition of the end of all things, understanding the value of resources and time and energy that are spent in daily life. And see, this type of thinking and discernment in life it is not generally cultivated in a lifetime of frivolity or just pursuing happiness and fun. This, this type of heart is not cultivated in those types of Scenarios, you know, wise men, when they go to funerals, they, they listen. They take to heart what is being said about the person. Maybe something, something uh, praiseworthy is said about the person and, and, and a wise man at a funeral grabs a hold of that and says, I want that to be said of me at my funeral. I want that to be reflected, reflective of my life. And they leave a funeral house the same day and they begin to reevaluate and reprioritize their life. And they start to reprioritize it according to eternal values. This is why the heart of the wise, it said, is in the house of mourning. But in contrast, the heart of fools are cultivated and formed and shaped by what he says here, mirth, a life full of pursuit of happiness and pleasure. You know, entertainment, oftentimes having fun, it it, it keeps our minds off of the serious things in life. We, we don't, we don't uh, have great value, value uh, thinking uh, in our brains when it's just about having fun, getting that next, 
sense tantalized by whatever it is that we're, we're looking to do. And, and it just shows us that fun and happiness and, and, and being a good time Charlie, that is not the goal of our life. In fact, it's not even uh, always best for our spiritual growth. In, in fact, many times it's harmful to our spiritual growth. And, and going back to 612, this is not always good. See, we, uh, from a human perspective, when we're having fun, when we're experiencing happiness, when we're being entertained, we say, that's what's fun. That's what life's all about. In fact, if you were to answer the question, what is, what is the good life all about? You know, we, I joke, we, you know, drive around the South, you see all sorts of uh, bumper stickers, right? And what is it? It's like salt life, right? Beach life. I mean, this is, this is in our thinking oftentimes as humans, that is what life's all about. It's about having fun. It's about being on a fishing boat. It's about doing this or doing that. And it's not that we can't enjoy those things, but the point is this, is that if that is your pursuit in life, you're pursuing happiness and fun and frivolity and laughter and just enjoyment, and you expect life uh, to, to, to grant you the ultimate meaning through those pursuits, you're going to be disappointed. And this is why God is, is saying, because we think the exact opposite than from God, and God is saying adversity and affliction can be good in your life. It can be good in your spiritual life. And it, it can be good in reprioritizing our values so that we live a life that's worth living, a life that has eternal value and meaning and impact. And that's really what we're after here. But foolish hearts uh, are cultivated in that type of living. They are, wise hearts are not cultivated in friv- frivolous living or just pursuing happiness and fun. And so a life without adversity or sorrow oftentimes leads to a shallow life. It's just the way it is. It cultivates foolish thinking. And this is why the New Testament is so clear. You know, we think, we, we look at a passage like James you know, one, uh, two through four, my, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and you're thinking to yourself, James is a moron. How, how in the world could he say to count it all joy when you fall into trials? That is, that's not the life I want. I want, I want to be catching fish, right? I want to be, I want to be floating on a lake somewhere. I, I don't want to be facing trials. Trials are not fun. But he says, count it all joy. And this is why, because there's a depth of life. There's a depth of goodness that we otherwise can't experience unless adversity, affliction, difficulties hit us because it's in those moments that we realize our need for the Lord. And we, and we have this, this natural tendency when we're hurt, confused, uh, disappointed to lean out and begin to walk by faith and to begin to trust in the Lord and begin to look to him. And, and we cannot be in a better place in our life than in that moment. And this is why James goes on to say, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so you see that that difficulties in life have a purpose. They, they accomplish a goal. They accomplish an eternal goal set forth by God for your spiritual growth oftentimes. And yet from a human perspective, we stiff arm trials. We react to trials negatively, not recognizing God's hand in those things. Now, it's a difficult thing for us to hear, 
but it's a good thing for us to hear that the next time a trial hits, an affliction, some adversity, that God can actually use that for good. He can actually grow you spiritually. You, you are in a position that you weren't in five minutes before the trial hit, and that is you realize your need for God in a new, fresh way that you didn't realize even a few minutes before. And that's uh, interesting because, again, difficult for us to hear, but good for us, which brings us to verse 5. Verse 5 says this, It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of, of fools. And, and when we talk about hearing the rebuke of the wise, this, this word here is, is actually has the idea of, of sound hitting your ears, but more than that, processing the information. In other words, listening with a desire to process and evaluate the information that you're receiving, that's the word that's used here. And he says it's better to hear the rebuke. And, and rebuke is exactly what we think it is. It is words that show that what you have done, what you have said, what you have thought, what you have felt is wrong. And, you know, when a wise man takes time to correct or rebuke someone, God says that's a good thing. That is a positive thing. It's better. This is one of the good things in life. And you know what's really ironic about it is none of us like rebuke. We, we all hate rebuke. In fact, um, even if somebody does it in a, in a nice way, correcting us, telling us we did something wrong, challenging the way that we're thinking, even if they do it in a gracious way, typically we don't like that. We don't sign up for that. We, we literally want to go through life, if we're being honest with ourselves, never being corrected because being corrected is not fun. It's painful. And yet God, if we take God's perspective on it, God says, you know what? It is for your good. This is something you should desire. You know, Proverbs 12.1 is, is a great verse in this. He says, he who loves, um, uh, let's read it because <laughs> it just left my mind. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. And then this next phrase, but he who hates correction is stupid. And you know, it's really foolish of anybody to go through life rejecting correction. Those are means good gifts of God's grace, even though uncomfortable, to redirect, to refocus, to get us back in line with divine viewpoint. And so he says it's better. This is a good thing. You know, fools avoid rebuke. Fools avoid correction. In fact, they just rather sing a song. They just rather have fun. Don't correct me. Don't tell me where I'm wrong. I don't want to improve. I don't want to grow. I just want to keep doing the same thing that I've been doing. You know, it's, it's fun. You're, yeah, I'm driving too fast toward a cliff, but you know what? That's okay. I want to just keep driving fast toward the cliff. Yeah, I know that I'll fly off the cliff, but don't tell me that I shouldn't fly off the cliff. And it's just a, a foolish way of thinking. You know, one of the things that we learn in the Bible is the Word of God is designed to correct our thinking. It's designed to correct our actions. It's designed... Uh, and it is full of rebuke. And, and, it, and you and I need to take the benefit of basically exposing ourselves to the Word of God, whether that's through the teaching uh, of, a, of a Bible teacher, a pastor, or if it's through personal study, because the Word of God wants to correct our thinking. And quite frankly, we need to understand that when we wake up in the morning, we don't naturally think biblical. 
You, you don't just roll out of bed thinking biblically. In fact, um, we need to be corrected time and time again. Even as we go about our day, we need little uh, reminders of truth to reorient us to the way of God's thinking. Because if we don't, we will just go through life thinking on a human viewpoint and life is going to be much more difficult than it's designed to be. When we can see things from the hand of God, we're much more equipped to do so. See, this is truly good. And, and notice this. This is Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But notice the three descriptions of why the scriptures are profitable. It says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for what? Well, doctrine's one of them. Reproof is one of them. Correction is one of them. And instruction in righteousness. Notice that three out of the four descriptions are corrective in nature. You've got reproof, you've got correction, and even instruction is, is child training, child discipline. And so three out of the four profitable uses for the Word of God involve correcting us, challenging us, rebuking us, reproving us in the way that we think. And so we've got to understand just even going into the study of the Word of God that God wants to get a hold of your thinking and that you probably are not thinking biblically uh, much of the time. That I'm not thinking biblically much of the time. It's not something to defend yourself on. It's something to submit ourselves to and say, you know what? I need the Word of God. I need the Word of God to challenge and correct and refocus, reprioritize my thinking. And, you know, it goes on to say, why? Why does God use his word to do that? Well, look at verse 17. That gives us the purpose that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, we need to be mature. We need to be equipped. That implies that we're not mature in and of ourselves. That implies we're not equipped in and of ourselves. It doesn't matter how skilled you are, how smart you are, how, what a great problem solver you are. If you're not taking in the word of God and allowing it to change and challenge your thinking, you are ill-equipped to face issues in life. And this is why he says it's better uh, in verse five to hear the rebuke of the wise. It's better. It's a good thing, even though we may not like it. In fact, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to do what? Well, for a man to hear the song of fools. Again, although possibly unpleasant and painful, taking in rebuke or correction is better than hearing the song of fools. What is the song of fools? Well, it just re represents frivolity. Something that's morally or, or spiritually hollow. Something that provides little to no substance as it relates to the truly important things in life. You know, and, and oftentimes when you just think about the songs that we listen to. You know, sometimes they don't even make sense. The, the, the words in the songs that we listen to don't even make sense, but we'll just repeat it and sing it. And it kind of gives us maybe a warm, uh, you know, feeling. I was, I was thinking about songs that just, uh, you know, there's this, there's this one song that it doesn't matter what, what uh, situation you're in. You could, be at a, uh, you could be at a restaurant. You could be at a bowling alley. You could be uh, at a concert, you could be at a, at, a, at a professional sporting event, a college sporting event. Um, oftentimes, you could even be at a church picnic. Uh, you know, but when Sweet Home Alabama, the first couple of notes hits, 
on that electric guitar, you're just like, you, you just feel like screaming, woo! You know, I mean, it's kind of, that's the natural response to these songs. And, and yet you look, you listen to the words of the song, it is not communicating life-giving words, but it makes you feel well. And just imagine a life pursuing the songs of fools. That's kind of what it's representative of, uh, of just meaningless, hollow lyrics, not providing you exactly what you need in the most difficult moments of life, not providing you true and lasting meaning. And yet many people, that's exactly how they pursue life. Song to song to song, foolish entertainment after foolish entertainment, looking, striving, trying to find something that they uh, find true meaning and purpose and they can't find it. And this is what he's saying. You know what? It's even better as uncomfortable as it is to get your mind corrected and challenged and pointed out that you're doing something wrong because at least you're going to be growing if you respond well to that correction. And now Solomon's going to give us a visual of, of this lack of depth that's found in foolishness in verse six. He says it this way. It's, he uses this as, a, as kind of a, a visual image. He says, for, the crack, for like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. And uh, it says a fool's laughter is compared to the sound of a burning thorns under a pot of food. And so what's his comparison here? You know, if it, a, lot of, a lot of people, if they haven't been camping, um, they may not understand what this is saying. And basically what, what he's saying is this, thorn bushes, they flare up quickly. They, they flare up quickly into a huge fire, but then they also quickly die down. And so they're short-lived. And the point is this, is if you're trying to cook something, you need a, a long, consistent, stable burn to cook something. You don't need a, a flash in the pan. You don't need something that's short-lived, that makes a lot of noise, that looks like it's doing what it needs to do, but then it's, it's short-lived. And see, this is exactly what finding um, pleasure and these passing foolish things are like. They may meet the need at the moment, but there's no lasting meaning or purpose or relief of pressure. Only, only spiritual growth can do that. Only growth in wisdom, only growth in the fear of the Lord can do and provide a, a stable experience. We understand Solomon's conclusion here. This also is vanity because it's a familiar one. This is exactly what he's been ta- talking about uh, in, in life. It's not going to provide lasting meaning. It's, it's not good. If we're going back to to 612. This is not good. This is a not good way of approaching life. And although, you know, in, in our sense, it, we may even think it's better. We may even think, no, this is the way to go. But from God's perspective, it is not what living life to the fullest is all about. You know, have you ever wondered, just in your own life, why you still, uh, and this is just more of a personal question, why you still feel empty after you've gotten your dream job? after you've gotten your dream car, after you've gotten your dream spouse, after you've gotten your dream fill in the blank. Maybe as a kid, you, you had a dream gift and yet there's a letdown after you get that gift. And, and, and the point is this, I think that the emphasis is we need to stop trusting in and going after the things that we think are good and we need to trust and rely upon God's estimation of good. That's one of the negative things that came through the fall. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter three. And what is the name of the tree that they ate 
the fruit of. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They would gain a knowledge of good and evil. And we know that today as being our conscience. But see, mankind was never designed to only independently evaluate things, whether they're good or evil, based on our conscience. We were always designed to be in dependent fellowship with the Lord and to take good and evil, valuations of good and evil from his perspective. And the day that they rebelled against the Lord and ate of the fruit, they gained a conscience and that conscience, they they began to exercise in independence from God, thereby evaluating what is good and evil in their own eyes. And you know what? We're still recovering from that. Many of us live life exactly this way, evaluating things through our own perspective, our human horizontal perspective and say, yes, X, Y, Z is good, but A, B, C is bad. And oftentimes in God's estimation, it's completely opposite. And that's why chapter six and chapter seven of Ecclesiastes is so important. Success, fun times, good times, Charlie, that's not always good. It can actually stunt, hinder your spiritual growth. It can actually destroy your fellowship with the Lord. And you know what? Adversity and affliction and trials, it's not always bad. It can actually motivate you. It can actually encourage you. It can reprioritize your thinking and your view and your evaluation of life. And so it can be very good. And so we need to just drop our inspector label, you know, turn in your fruit of the loom stickers in terms of evaluating what's good and what's bad in life and begin to take God's perspective on things and begin to see things from God's perspective. You know, some other potential distractions that, that, that distract us from recognizing God's goodness in our lives are found in verse seven. Verse seven says this, surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. Surely oppression, this, this word surely is a, is a marker of, of emphatic emphasis here. He, it strengthens the following sentence. And, and what he said here in the following sentence is that oppression, which again, oppression just means tyranny, something that causes hardship or trouble, um, typically in the form of mistreatment uh, of people. And he, what he's saying is this type of oppression actually causes a, a negative outcome even in wise people. And what is that negative outcome? Well, it's the destruction of their reason. Or better put, oppression oftentimes will turn wise people into fools. It, in fact, it turns them oftentimes when wise people see oppression or experience oppression against them, uh, sometimes it literally drives them mad because they can't sort through what they know to be true and how things should work why is it not working that way? And it literally drives them mad. They're mad. In other words, they, they see the suppression of others. They, it, it's got this negative impact on them by causing them to question knowledge they possess, whether or not it's worth even trying to apply it skillfully. The, the idea is if I see and observe oppression, my wisdom can't prevent it or help it, then what's the use of my even trying? That's kind of the gist of what is being communicated here. Another possible interpretation is that the impression is against them. But the same uh, comment applies. If they can't prevent oppression happening against them, even though they've pursued wisdom, then what's the point? Why even pursue it? And you know, it becomes even more apparent and is illustrated well in the case of bribery. And that's the thing that he mentions next, that, 
that destroys, he, he literally says destroys the heart or debases the heart. Bribes, uh, along with oppression, they, they put a lot of pressure on, on a person to do what they normally wouldn't do. You know, if, if, if oppression wasn't in, involved in certain situations, people might choose the right path or do the right thing. If bribes weren't involved in certain situations, people would probably choose the right path. There would be no reason to veer from that. And yet these two things can end up destroying or dis, um, causing issues with the heart. You know, bribes are said here to debase, destroy, annihilate, or wipe out the heart. Again, the heart speaks of the inner man, the, our motivations, the core of a person. And um, oppression and bribes has this effect. It's an internal destruction. It's a, uh, it's a hopelessness, if you will, that sets in into the mind of a person. And it, and it really disrupts or destroys their moral compass. It disrupts or disturbs their, their ability to evaluate accurately the important things in life. In other words, they, they, can't, they can't go on seeing things from a divine perspective. Now, from a, from a human or a carnal perspective— this makes a lot of sense because oppression and bribery, that, that's how you get things done, right? You go to Washington, D.C., you look at our political scene, that's how you get things done. You don't, you don't get things done except if you're oppressing or bribing people or trying to influence them with money. And our, and our political scene is kind of known for that type of behavior, but it's not, uh, it's not limited to Washington. It's, it's in lots of different industries, not only in our country, but worldwide. It's a human problem for sure. But see, these two things, oppression and bribery, they absolutely distract from what's truly good from God's perspective. See, God has a, has a good in mind in life, and these two things will distract from that because as we begin to see these anomalies, we say, oh, well, maybe it's not good. No, from God's perspective, some of these things he can use for his good, and so these become, unfortunately, distractions. Now, one of the things that God wants us to see uh, through Solomon's writing here is found in verse eight. And that is this, it's good in finishing strong. You know, oppression and bribery oftentimes says, well, is it worth it? Should I continue on this path? Should I continue growing in the Lord? Should I continue to take divine perspective? Or should I just go into self-protection mode? Should I just go in defending myself, trying to get whatever I can get for myself? You know, looking out for number one, and, and God's going to say, no, no, it's good in finishing strong. It's good in finishing the right way. Verse 8 says this, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And, you know, the end of the thing is talking about the end or completion of a project, whatever that project might be. And, and those of us that have ever finished a project know that it's more fulfilling to finish a project than just to begin a project. You know, oftentimes when you begin a project, there's all this gusto and excitement, but there's actual fulfillment and long-standing kind of uh, patience or uh, just moving through things with determination or perseverance that there's some fulfillment when it's completely done. And, you know, it's true for many events. Uh, again, in, in matters in life, it, it's easy to start a project, uh, but it's, it's a little bit harder to have the staying power to finish it through. And see, in God's estimation, this is good. Seeing a project through the end of something is good, according to God's estimation. In fact, he's going to say that a patient, 
uh, patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And how does that go with starting or finishing a project? Well, generally the patient in spirit are people who can see a project through. They, the proud in spirit generally kind of get, get, get blustery and, and obnoxious to start it. They're, they're sounding off the alarms to start a project, but oftentimes they don't have the staying power to see it through. You know, and patience literally means slow to anger or long suffering. And patience is one of those qualities where you're able to weather trials. You're, you're able to weather obstacles as they come up. And that kind of quality is needed for staying power to finish things. You've got to have that kind of quality to be able to finish things because there's all sorts of obstacles, dilemmas, you know, even oppression and bribery could fit. There are all sorts of things that come at you in life. And if you're not leaning on the Lord, if you're not trusting the Lord to produce this patience in you, you and I will not have staying power. We'll just, we'll just pull off of the project. Instead of going forward, we'll, we'll move our foot from the accelerator. We'll put it on the brake we'll, and we'll even get out of the car oftentimes and not finish what we started. And there's a fulfillment in finishing things. And that's what we're learning from the passage. You know, in contrast, the proud in spirit is, is typically haughty and arrogant. When they start a project, they typically boast in themselves. They boast in what they're accomplished. They're going to exalt what they're able to do. Uh, and, they, and they pretty much don't say, if I do this, it says, when I do this, I'm going to do this. I, I am going to accomplish this. And they have this proud, blustery, almost obnoxious way of approach to a project. And typically those are the type of people that don't have the staying power to finish a project. They typically explode when something goes wrong and they're quick to, to possibly give in. Again, this is a person that might predict great things at the beginning of the project, but not have the staying power. So in contrast to being patient uh, or slow to anger by definition, these types of people, these people who are proud in spirit may be the exact opposite. They may be quick to to anger. And that's what the the next verse is going to talk about or warn of. Uh, because being quick to anger is, is not a good thing. And that's what we see in verse 9. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. And this is a, an often repeated refrain in the Bible. We see some Old Testament passages there in Proverbs 12 uh, and, and 29 about not hastening your spirit to be angry. And the word hasten has the idea of being alarmed or alerted. Something is brought to your attention. You, you learn information and then you respond or you react quickly. You, you know, as soon as the information hits you, there's a reaction. There's not a, a, a second to, to think through, to, to understand what's happening. There's an immediate reaction. And typically uh, it comes in anger. And he says, don't hasten. Don't be ready to respond quickly in, in anger. Because anger rests in the bosom of fools. And so the idea communicated is don't allow yourself to be hurried into a state of anger, to to be vexed or incensed. You know, James says it this way in James 1. He says, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. There's, There's wisdom in not reacting to circumstantial bumps in our life. And yet for many of us, that's exactly what happens. If we're honest with ourselves, the moment an unforeseen circumstance hits us, 
boom, we, we come unglued. We come right out of our seat. And, and even if we, we've learned to control that externally so other people don't, don't see it, we see it internally. We feel the spike in, in heart rate at times when something doesn't go our way. And notice what he says in verse 9. Don't hasten in your spirit to be angry. Why? For anger rests in the bosom of fools. There's a, another reason he gives here. He further elaborates on this idea of anger uh, resting in the bosom of fools. And I, I love the, the imagery that Solomon gives here because resting in the bosom of fools means that it's, it's cherished. It's nourished and, and thus it's at home. When, when, when you are a fool, anger is at home in your life, has a home. It's made, it's, 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 it's comfortable, right? What do we tell our guests when they come to our home? Hey, make yourself at home. Make yourself comfortable. What does that mean? That means if they're thirsty, they can get up, go into your cupboard, grab a glass, drink all of your, your milk or your soda or whatever, and you're okay with that. They've made themselves at home. They've made themselves comfortable. Another commentator said this phrase means to constantly lurk or hang around. I like that. that that's a great description of anger. And that's why many people can go throughout their day not be angry at all, and then a certain circumstance hits them, and then boom, unglued, right out of their seat, reactionary. The moment something unforeseen hits their processing center, their brain, they react. And that's because anger is lurking under the surface. And you know, the reason it's better to be patient or slow to anger, Solomon said in verse 8, someone quick to anger reveals. It only reveals that they are a fool indeed. In fact, a fool is quick to react angrily to any set of circumstances that they didn't foresee. Whereas a patient man is presented with the same set of circumstances and yet immediately their reaction is, oh, I wonder why God's allowing this. I wonder what God wants to accomplish through this. And you see immediately the contrast in reaction. One person responds to the Lord before they respond to the circumstances. And one person immediately acts through the circumstances. And the vertical aspect of life never even enters their equation. Now, why does this happen? Well, for a fool, anger is said to be resting or constantly lurking in their bosom, always ready to spring up, always ready to show itself. Given, given any disruption, any disruption of circumstantial happiness or circumstantial peace. And see, that's why the fool is only after circumstantial happiness and circumstantial peace. Because the moment something goes wrong, the moment that gets bumped, the moment their drink is spilled a little bit, they fly off the handle. Because it's lurking, it's ready to react. And you know, what's interesting for the believer in Jesus Christ is that circumstances only reveal what source of life you're living from. And you only got two as a believer. You can, you can live from the source of the flesh, indwelling sin, the sin nature, or you can learn to live from the source of, of God. You can learn from a, uh, live from a divine source. So you've got Two options here. And what we've got to understand is that many times the way that we think needs to be corrected. We need to take a rebuke from the word of God here. And that is this. 
that thing over there didn't make you angry. This thing over here didn't make you angry. That person over there didn't make you angry. All they did was provide circumstantial bumps that revealed what source you're living life from. That's all they did. It's not necessarily their fault. Ultimately, you have the ability, because you can live from the source of the life of Jesus Christ, you have the ability to respond to circumstantial bunts the same exact way that Jesus Christ would respond to the same circumstantial bumps if he were living in your body. And by the way, as a believer, he is living in your body. God wants to reproduce the life of Jesus Christ in and through your body and give you the resources that you need to learn how to respond to the Lord before you react to circumstances. And see, a fool doesn't do that. A fool is walking by means of the flesh and thus anger is just lurking because it's a, it's a work of the flesh. It is ready to pounce. Given a, a moment's disruption in circumstances, boom, it is coming out of its seat. You know, it's interesting as we move to verse 10, you know, oftentimes when we get angry, we get frustrated with present circumstances. You know what many of us naturally do? We, day, we daydream about the past. We start to think, oh, the way it used to be. Oh, the good old days. And so Solomon addresses that in verse 10. And in verse 10, he says this, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. You've heard people say, ah, those were the good old days. Oh, those were the days. And you have people that, that sit around and complain about present circumstances and long for yesteryear. And um, it's interesting because the way Solomon says it, he, he says, do not say, it's in the imperfect aspect in the Hebrew. And it, it denotes ongoing talking. Do not say and go on saying those were the days. You know, many people, that's all they want to talk about is how it used to be, how much better it was. And, and, and you get this, this image in your mind of, wow, if I could have lived in that time frame, then my life would have been easy. It would have been, it would have been set. I would have been happy all the time. And we long for yesteryear. And Solomon says, don't do that. Don't, don't allow yourself to get caught up in that type of thinking. In fact, to say that the former days were better than the present is actually to disagree with what verse eight teaches. Verse eight said the end of a thing is better than the beginning. People who are longing for yesteryear say, no, 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 no. It is actually better in the beginning than it is at the end. No, there's, there's an opportunity for us in the present to finish strong. And yet when, when our mind begins to go, oh, those were the days, it's like we're giving up on the present. We're giving up on the future, and we shouldn't do that. In fact, those making the statement in verse 10, those were the days, or why were the former days better than these, are directly contrasting verse 8. And it really just demonstrates a lack of understanding of the details of human history, because there's no era in human history that's better than any other era in history. Now, there might be pieces of a bygone era that we wish were also here in the present day, and that's uh, understandable. But to say that, that going back to that era, everything was perfect then, it's just not true. It's not true in any era of history. And so what we want to do is we want to take uh, the present and evaluate the present 
in light of God's perspective. That is, I believe, the point here. Now, why? You know, in verse 10, he says, don't say this. Why were the former days better than these? And he says, the reason why? Because when you say this, you don't inquire wisely concerning this. So now he gives us this reason. He says, you don't inquire wisely. The, the quest, that, that question, that whole line of thinking is not wise. It's not even a wise way of thinking. There's no practical benefit. There's no, there's no reason to even take the time of daydreaming about yesterday to investigate. Why does he say that? Well, because of this. No one can change the past, nor can you bring the past into the present in that sense. But what you can do and where our energy should be focused is what can we do in the present and in the future with good and wise decisions now. In other words, let's put away the trophies from the past and let's start in our thinking to to pursue different trophies in the present. Let's, Let's be walking in the fear of the Lord and walking in dependence on the Lord because he's got, a, he's got a purpose for you today. In fact, if you've still got a body and you're still breathing, God wants to do something with your life. Now, it may not be as, as, as front and center as it has been in the past. It may not be as impactful as as many people as it once was, but God still has a purpose that he wants to accomplish in our life. And see this, these are the kind of things, this is why it's so Good. It's better for you and I to buy into God's perspective, to, to buy God's perspective on affliction, on adversity, on trials in our lives, because these are the very means oftentimes that he uses as tools in our life to cultivate wise thinking to grow us spiritually. And you know, one of the things that we know about growing spiritually, it's not just so that we can look better at church to people, we can quote more Bible verses. That's not it at all. When you're growing spiritually, that means you can enjoy the Lord Jesus more fully in your daily life. And when you enjoy him more fully in your daily life, you can enjoy the blessings associated with life under the sun. And that's where we want to get. Living a life that has eternal value, has eternal impact, and actually that we can enjoy all of the blessings and have wise perspective on adversity and affliction in our life, that it would actually be tools in the hands of God to springboard us into further relationship and fellowship with him. And so may that be true of of each one of us uh, as we just continue to walk and live and breathe and, and have our movements in this life. And let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for the wisdom of your word. This is this book of Ecclesiastes is known as wisdom literature, Lord. It's designed to, to give us knowledge that we can skillfully apply in life. And we need skill, Lord, in the area of recognizing what's good and what's bad in life under the sun. We oftentimes flip it around backwards from the way that you view things. And so, Lord, we need your perspective. We need your correction. We need your rebuke. We desire to see life through the lens of your eyes. May you give us that, Lord, each and every day by reminding us of your word. And may we respond, each one of us, may we learn what it means to respond moment by moment by faith to the truth contained in your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.